People are visual, right? Here's my opening conversation. People are visual. That's actually why my wife has a job. Uh, because most people can't, can't see it until they see it, right? Um, if you try to explain, if you take my, if you take my mother-in-law into a room and you're like, this is going to be like this. Her response will be, I don't see it. I just, most people can't see things that they don't see. That's why certain people that, that have a vision for an empty space or like Joe, you walk into a building and you're like, I'm going to tear this out. I'm going to tear that out. I'm going to tear this out. And then we're going to rebuild it like this. Most people get overwhelmed when you start talking about that, but some of us get excited when we walk into a space like that because we can see things that we don't yet see. Because most people are visual. Uh, we talk about color, design, moving this or that. They look at us with a blank stare, but then it's like HGTV every day. You walk them into a finished space, and they're like, oh, that's awesome. Now I see what you were talking about back then. Now I see it when you walk them into the finished space. That's why my wife has a job, that's why a lot of us get to do what we get to do, because some of us have the ability to see things that aren't yet there. We can create it with words and, and, and imagine it before it's there. So when we get to talking about church ordinances, and some of you this is gonna be a new, uh, a new thing, um, some vocabulary may be new for you. So. Um, church ordinances are like that in the fact that they are visible symbols of the gospel of Jesus. Visible symbols of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has given us two ordinances for the church that we get to practice and observe um, as a church continually. Okay, one of them is baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper, or you may know it as communion. But they are visible symbols of the gospel of Jesus. Um, given to the church by Jesus for us to practice to bring about a greater experience and understanding for what Jesus has already accomplished. Okay? So baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper, as we practice, we have a greater understanding and a greater experience for what Jesus has accomplished. Okay? So I'm going to write these two down for us and we're going to work on them today. So baptism and Lord's Supper. Who knows it as the Lord's Supper? Who knows it as communion? Right? So we were on the boat yesterday. I said, hey, Zach, I know you guys are going to be late, but we're having Lord's Supper tomorrow. He's like, we're having what? And I said, communion. He said, oh. Right? Just depends on what camp you come from. Depends on what camp you come from. And why are we having this conversation? Because some of you are like, oh, this is so simple that I don't know why we're even having the conversation. Because in a former ministry of mine, there was a, young, uh, there was a, a guy who had recently put his faith in Christ. He was brand new to the church, never been of a church, never been a part of a church before. And the, uh, we, we announced that as a church, we were going to observe the Lord's Supper on Sunday night, and he intentionally did not come, and he told me I'd already eaten, so I didn't come. That's why we're having this conversation, because it's, it's, it's not a meal. It's, it's, it's different than that. 
it's an ordinance that Jesus has given us to practice until he returns. So um, maybe simple, but I also want to dig into the why. So uh, we're going to ask two things this morning. We want to know what these ordinances are, what are these two, and what are they for? Uh, I want us to understand both of those. So let's start right here with baptism, and let's go to Acts chapter 2. Anybody know what Acts means when we're talking about the book of Acts? What what other word, if you made the word Acts longer, what could you turn it into? Actions. Actions of... There's been two descriptions of why it's called Acts. Actions of the early church, the first century church, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Either one I think would be correct because it follows the early church in the first first century after Jesus resurrects to his Father. So it tells us the actions of the church or the actions of the Holy Spirit in that time. Acts 2 verse 38 says, Peter replied, Peter just got through telling thousands of people the gospel of Jesus. He's in this public setting. He, he has described it. And then he says, repent. Or everybody hears him and says, wow, that's an incredible message. What, what should we do? Now that we've heard that, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So they heard the gospel, they heard the message of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and they were amazed and astounded at what they had just heard, and they said, now what? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Uh, Repent, just give us a working definition, is a change of mind that brings about a change of direction. A change of mind that brings about a change of direction. If my mind is changed on something, then my body goes a different way. Right? So John says, you need to bring forth um, evidence of your repentance. You can't just say, I repent, and then go the same way you've been going because your mind hasn't changed. Repentance means, I see it different now. So I'm going to go this way instead of that way. My whole life has been going this way because I saw things one way, but now I've heard the message of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and it has caused me to stop, acknowledge it, and I'm like, that's the wrong way. I'm going to follow him this way. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind that brings about a change of direction. So what Peter's talking about right here in Acts 2.38 Turning from disobedience to obedience, and the first step in turning from disobedience to obedience, Peter describes as baptism. Repent and be baptized, each of you. You've heard the gospel, you believed it, and now I'm going to turn from disobedient life away from Jesus to obedient life towards Jesus And as soon as I turn, I'm met with the act of baptism. It's the first thing that I'm called to do in the moment of repentance. That's what he's laid down for us. And then in Matthew 28, well, actually, so we have disobedience to obedience 
baptism, and that's followed by an increasing, uh, a life of increasing uh, obedience and transformation. Okay. So I, I want us to understand this this morning, that when we turn from disobedience, rebellion against God, believing the gospel, turning to Jesus, starting with baptism, that's my, my first obedience in believing the gospel, now what we're going to find is a life of increasing obedience and transformation that comes through Jesus. Okay? Going this way, somebody shared the gospel, I believed it, I had a change of mind, I'm going back, I'm baptized, walking into obedience, and for the rest of my life, it's an increasing measure of transformation and obedience to Jesus, starting with baptism. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. So Jesus says, make disciples or followers, learners. They're following and learning the path and the footsteps of Jesus. Turn people towards me to follow and learn from me. They will be baptized in the Father, Son, and Spirit, the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then you're going to teach them to obey all things. You're going to teach them to obey all things. So what he's saying is, disobedience to obedience, baptism, and then a life of increasing obedience and transformation from that point on. Trekking with me? That's the process that he's laid out for us. Okay. Um, there are many ideas and practices concerning these two ordinances. Like I said, depending on what camp you came from or if you don't come from any um, Christian or religious background at all, then you may not have any concept of this. But if you come from any background whatsoever, then you've probably got your own um, foundational beliefs or understandings of what these are and how we practice them. Baptism varies... Um, varies in, in belief and practices all the way from baptizing infants to baptizing believers. Uh, it goes from submersion in water to sprinkling. Uh, and it goes from believing that it's symbolic to believing that baptism is actually effectual in bringing your salvation to reality. So there's, there's a wide view of what baptism is intended for and how we're going to observe it and practice it. Um, but in week one of our foundation discussion, what did we say all truth comes from? The Bible. So that's our source. That's our source. That's where we're going to start to figure out how and why and what to do here in the concept of baptism. So because of that, our foundational belief is concerning the Bible as our source. We practice what is taught and what is seen in the scriptures only. Okay. We are going to practice what is taught and seen in the scriptures. So, this may be a little bit of a challenge for, for some of us, just because, like I said, depending on what camp you came from, you may 
have, you may have walked in here with a, uh, your own framework for what baptism is. And I'm telling you, we're going to practice what's taught and seen in the scriptures. And that may not correlate with, with that framework that you brought in. Okay. Now, I've had a lot of good conversations with a lot of good people that practice baptism different than I do. And I by no means think they're stupid or naive because they have a very clear thought process for why and how they do things. Okay? So I realize that there's some really intelligent people that have come to different conclusions than I have. So that's why I'm saying very humbly that we practice what is taught and seen in the scriptures. That's what we do. Okay? So what do we see and what are we taught? Acts chapter 8, we have an encounter... Um, Acts chapter 8 verse 29 is where it kind of picks up. There's a man named Philip who is an apostle, who is a follower of Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit says, go here and meet this man. And then he goes and there's this, um, this Ethiopian man that's, uh, that's traveling, and as he's traveling, he's reading the scroll. And it, it turns out to be the scroll of Isaiah from the Old Testament. Um, so let's pick it up. The Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. This is verse 30 now. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the scripture passage was reading like this. This is what the Ethiopian was reading. He was led like a, sl- a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before his shears, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. And who will describe his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's water. What can keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Okay? So here we have, what do we see here? We see a man who has heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, according to the scriptures. He has believed it, which brings him to repentance. But then we see that baptism is practiced by doing what? They went down into the water. They went down into the water. And then it says, when they had come up out of the water. So we know that baptism was practiced in this situation by immersion, by going down into the water. It was not a sprinkling, it was a going into the water, right? So we see there that it's practiced in that manner. And we also see here that it's practiced uh, by those who have recently put their faith in Jesus. It's a a believer's baptism is the the term that's given to us uh, to, to understand that. So here in this situation and in many other situations in the scriptures, that's how we see baptism being practiced and taught in the scriptures. It's practiced and taught by going into the water by people who have put their faith in Jesus. Okay? So uh, 
Tyler and I were talking about this earlier this week, and I'm very, because I have some really good friends who practice some things different than the way I practice it, and they're not idiots for doing so, I'm very cautious about when I teach, I don't want to teach against somebody or against a practice. I just want to say this is what we see in the scriptures, so therefore we believe all truth comes from, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, then that's where we start, and that's where we walk, right? So in this, I try to be very humble and say we're not teaching against someone or something else. We're teaching for scriptural authority, and we're teaching for us adhering our life to what God has revealed in the scriptures, okay? So going into the water, underwater, by those who have put their faith in Jesus, Paul says in Romans, uh, so let's say, into and under water by believers in Jesus. And then Paul in Romans chapter 6, I know we're jumping around more than I usually do. It's kind of what happens when you hit a topic instead of a passage. Um, But Paul says something very clear, and this has been one of my main baptism teaching passages for my ministry. Romans 6, verse 3 through 5, Paul says this. All of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Okay. So he says a few things here. Baptism symbolizes what? What does Paul tell us that baptism symbolizes? Yeah. Symbolizes Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. Man, I like skipping letters when I'm spelling long words. Um, It's my shorthand. I always blame my dad because he was a pharmacist and I grew up looking at his chicken scratch in the pharmacy. They have the worst handwriting of all people on earth, pharmacists and doctors, so... Um, (laughs) <laughs> well, it's genetic. It's genetic. So baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it also, Paul is twisting it and saying it also symbolizes your death, your burial, and your resurrection that comes through Jesus. So yes, when somebody is laid down into the waters and they're taking underwater, it is the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are identifying as a believer in that message. You are showing by submitting to the act of baptism that I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But Paul is taking that and saying it's also symbolizing you laying down your life, dying to your old self, and because of the message of Jesus, you are raising to new life because of the message of Jesus. That you are 
in newness of life you will walk. You will walk as a new creation, born again. And baptism not only signifies Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it symbolizes your death, burial, and resurrection. It connects you and Jesus. And he says, if we have been made new in Jesus, we will certainly one day be resurrected fully with Jesus. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago, or last week when we talked about life after death, when we spend eternity in the presence of God. He says, if you have indeed died with Christ, you will indeed one day dwell with him. And baptism symbolizes you laying down your old life to pick up a new one and follow Jesus. Okay? Peter also says that it symbolizes the washing away of sin. Symbolizes the washing away of sin. Now Peter doesn't say baptism washes away your sin, but that the message of Jesus washes away your sin and following him and submitting to the message of Jesus, you now submit to baptism and it symbolizes the washing away of your sin through the clear conscience based on the gospel. Okay? So we know it's into and underwater by believers in Jesus, symbolizing Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and also my death, burial, and resurrection and it symbolizes the washing away of my sin according to a clear conscience that comes through faith in what Jesus has accomplished for you. This is baptism. This is baptism. Um, we be, so here's our we believe statements. I don't even want to write this. We'll put it on the podcast and we'll type it. These we believe statements get long. I tried to keep them short this week. We believe every new believer in Jesus is baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. That's our foundational truth of how we move forward, ensuring that we're doing things that last for eternity. We believe every new believer in Jesus is baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we actually have baptism scheduled for the last Sunday in September. Okay? Um... So, if you have, wait, if, if, if you would identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if, if you believe that message, and, and you hear that, and you're like, yes, but you haven't heard that in turn from disobedience to obedience, becoming a follower of Jesus, then we invite you on September 29th to participate in this baptism service to where you are publicly identifying as a believer in Christ, saying, I am turning from my old life, my old direction, and I want to communicate that I'm turning into this new direction to follow this Jesus whom I put my faith in. I identify as a believer in his death, burial, and resurrection, and I want to display that I'm laying down my old life and that the power of Jesus, he's raising me to new life, and I'm going to live it for him. So September 29th, we already have one person that wants to proclaim that publicly, and we invite 
you, if that's you, to be a part of that. Because the life of turning from disobedience to obedience begins with that step. Okay? Um, This is your chance. So I want to ask a question, just because I don't want to run too fast through this. Does what we've just said present any questions or any need for clarification for you? Are there any questions that come to mind or would you like us to clarify anything that we've hit on? I was eight years old when I was baptized. Eight years old. And as an eight-year-old, my faith was very simple, extremely basic. Um, It's what we call the faith of a child. It's just, I heard it, I believed it, and I turned towards it. Right? But from that point, I look at where I am now versus where I was then, and I could say that this process, a life of increasing obedience and transformation, has taken place from eight years old to 39 years old. I'm increasingly being transformed by the message that I claim to believe at eight years old. Now, there was a span of about 15 years where I resisted that transformation, resisted that obedience, but eventually grace won, and God's love pushed through in my life and and that transformation has begun and continues to take place. Eight years old, very simple, very basic. So I invite you, if you've been baptized, where were you? I mean, just what was your spiritual condition when you believed and were baptized then versus where you are now? What's, What's your story through that in a very simple, compact way? Where were you compared to where you are? Okay. Um, now, I was 38 years old, hmm. and I was just starting out with Yeah, wow. Yeah. So you would describe it as... Yeah. So baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church, or sprinkled, and then at 38 years old, you decided, I believe this, I want to follow in baptism. Had the honor of doing that alongside your son, which is pretty incredible. But describe your faith at 38 as comparable to an eight-year-old. Just very simple and basic. And increasing transformation and obedience from that point on to where you are now. Right? It's, it's a journey. Who else? I was, when I was in where I was, I was Started to see that transformation really start to occur. 
I really talked to my parents about it. Okay, I saw I was baptized as a baby, but like I really wanted to, to make it visible and actually proclaim in my church and everything. Mm-hmm. And to my friends and family, like, I'm actually I'm going to own my my faith and my transformation and, and, sh- and show it up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was baptized when I was 15. Okay. And from that point, and even though it's definitely been Patchy. Yeah. Uh, it was that's where I really started to walk with Christ. So the difference is just actually moving just toward toward versus accepting big steps. Yeah. So you heard the gospel at seven, believed it, disconnected from the church, just from family situations. But at fifteen, you're like, I want in. I want, I want to show this. I want to display my faith in the life, death, and resurrection. And I think Stephen, what he said, my. My growth and my transformation has been spotty. I think we would all probably testify to that in some sort of way, that, that grace applied to our life is sometimes messy. <laughs> and sometimes we, we do our darndest to, to resist it or not apply it, right? But God's faithful and he's good to continue with us um, to see about our transformation. So, um, so anybody else want to share just your where you were spiritually, how that's kind of fleshed out for you. So that's the thing. Uh, I, I want to do this. In my 10, 12 years of being in ministry, this is one of the things, especially in a evangelical type ministry world, um, people are baptized when they're young because they say, I believe that, so let me be baptized. And it's like when, when um, the, the eunuch's like, there's water. What should keep me from getting in it? I'm like, there's nothing to keep you from getting in it. You believe, jump in the water and let's do this thing. And, but then you come to a point and you're like, and I've heard this so many times, I was baptized at eight, I was baptized at 10, but now I'm 16 and, and I understand it so much more. And, and, and I look at when I was baptized as an eight or a 10 year old and I just didn't understand anything. I need to be baptized again. And I'm like, here's my personal view, starting from scripture on that is, do you have to be baptized again? No, because your faith was so simple and the process <laughs> is to believe, turn, and then it's increasing in measure the rest of your life. If you don't get 10 years down the road and say, God, I understand this so much more than I did when I was baptized, then there's a problem. I think that should be normal. That should be normal. It doesn't mean you have to go redo something you did before. It just means you're growing in grace and in the gospel. 
right? It doesn't void the simplicity of your faith when you're 8, 10, or 15. It's the process, right? Does that mean you can't be baptized when you're later? No, it doesn't mean that either. There's no necessity in it, but if the Spirit leads you to it, then be faithful to the Spirit and walk in the things He calls you to, right? But two or three of you just shared the same story. I was baptized or sprinkled. I was sprinkled by the Catholic Church or whatever church it was when I was a baby, but then I came to believe and I wanted to display my belief. We believe that's a biblical decision to make. We believe it is because... The people and the things we're taught in the scriptures, they're baptized because they believe, right? They're baptized because they believe. So we believe that that's a scriptural decision that you don't have to think too much about. Um, So if baptism declares the substance of your faith, and that's what it does, it declares the substance of your faith, then the, the Lord's Supper declares it over and over. Baptism declares it once, but then the Lord's Supper communion declares it over and over. Um, we are saved once by hearing and believing the gospel, yet we need to hear the gospel again and again. Just because you heard it and believed once doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again and again and again. Because as you continue to hear the gospel, it continues to transform you throughout the rest of your life and your journey. So that's why we have baptism once and the Lord's Supper again and again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is describing to us the Lord's Supper and and how to observe and why to observe it. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. And when he had given it, or he says, what I received from the Lord, I also passed to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when you eat this bread, you do it to remember me and my body that has been broken for you. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a lot going on in the Lord's Supper that goes back to Israel and the Passover and things all the way from the days of Moses. But ultimately, in order to simplify it for this morning, we believe that the Lord's Supper was instructed by Jesus to remember his sacrificial death on a cross until he returns through the elements that symbolize his body and his blood. That's what we believe. We believe that it was given by Jesus, instructed to remember his sacrificial death through his body and his blood until he comes back. So how long are we going to do the Lord's Supper? Until he returns. Until he returns. We'll continue to repeat it over and over in remembrance of his sacrificial death. So declaring together, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we declare together that Christ has come 
and he will come again. We're saying that by taking these elements. We're saying that Jesus has come, and when he did, he sacrificed himself, but we're also saying in synchrony that he's coming again. It's a a proclaiming of things past and things future at the same time. I got two questions for you before we wrap this up. Number one, what value could there be in remembering and proclaiming Jesus' death? What value could there be as we remember and proclaim Jesus' sacrificial death? What's the value in that? Humility that comes with it? Gratitude? What else? What's the value in remembering and proclaiming his sacrificial death? An example, what do you mean by that? Okay. So kind of like the baptism thing, that as we participate in this, we remember his death, but he's also called us to die to ourselves so that we might live for him. So it's an example that he's calling us to as well. says, whatever the reason is they're doing it, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so they're evangelistic in nature that when you, when you take this, I think there's something what Derek's saying that for whatever reason it's taken, for whatever, but being forced to come to this table and proclaim the gospel by participating in this, it's like, it's, it's bringing that, first of all, directly at you, and you're face-to-face with the gospel, and, and the death of Jesus on a cross on your behalf, that he, he, his body was broken and beaten, and his blood was poured out on your behalf. So whether you're taking or whether you're seeing it taken, whatever's going on, the power of the proclamation of the gospel is... Limitless. Mm-hmm. So it brings about questions. It brings about curiosity. Right? 
And I think, go back to my opening illustration, I can stand up here and talk to you guys until Jesus returns, but when we put this in front of you, the visual nature comes alive. Right? That sometimes you can't visualize my words, but when we have the bread and the cup, it becomes visible to you. And that visible nature of it sometimes hits home more than words do. Right? Because we're visual people. So here's a follow-up question. If there's value in proclaiming his death, what situation or current reality should you proclaim his death over? What reality or situation in your life should you proclaim his death over, on top of, to cover? If this is what participating and proclaiming his death brings about, what do you need to proclaim it over in your life? What is the pride in your life that's keeping you from walking closely in the footsteps of Jesus? What is the lack of gratitude in your life that's keeping you from peace and wholeness and joy? What is the example of Jesus you're not following, you're refusing the sin in your life that you're resisting to get rid of? What is the... (laughs) just so consumed by other things in your life that your curiosity for the gospel just isn't even spurred at this point. What situation in your life do you need to proclaim his gospel over as we partake this? Yes, in a different way. What change needs to take place in your life? And as we come to the table, we consider his sacrificial death on our behalf, and we proclaim it over that thing that needs to change. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this change will take place. It will happen. I'm proclaiming his death over this thing that needs to come alive, that needs to change in my life. I don't know if I even want you to answer all that out loud. I just want you to know it as you come to the table. Right? I want you to know it. That we, we don't come and just participate and go home. Let's begin to envision the life, what it would look like for us to walk as a resurrected follower of Jesus in the newness of life that he has created for us, that we're not walking in, that we're saying, this is holding us up. This is the reason I'm not made new. This is the thing that's keeping me from that. And let's go ahead and come and take and proclaim his death over that so that that transformation kicks in gear. Right? I don't want to passively observe this because there's power in the proclamation of his gospel. The Lord's Supper declares our continuing dependence upon Christ proclaimed in the gospel who died, buried, and rose for our salvation. So I invite you at this time to come and get one of each and then return to your seats and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Okay? So I think Stephen's going to play some music for us. 
as you guys come. Piece of the bread and get you a cup. Hey, Sean, will you let Shelly know? Yep, they're coming. Never mind. <laughs> Good job. We'll let them rejoin us. Consider now, what is it that you need to proclaim the gospel over? What, where do you need the power of his death to be applied, the sacrifice of his death to... Bring about an end to something in your life that his resurrection might bring about a newness in your life. What is the doubt? What is the pride? What is the lack of gratitude? Where is your resistance to following him? Where is that in your life? And go ahead and proclaim what he has done on your behalf so that there might be an end to that. And that today might be a beginning as you pursue him in his death and resurrection. What do you need to proclaim that over? Would you pray with me? Father, we... We know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, by that death, is not permission to continue in our sin. That death is permission to live. That you took our death that we deserved and placed it upon your son, which he did not deserve, and he fully took the wrath of God upon himself so that we might become sons and daughters. That we would be set free from sin. That we would be set free from the curse. God, but I think, I know that many of us, even now, are keeping ourselves shackled to the curse of sin because we are unwilling to take a step of faith. We are unwilling to give up this or to give up that. We, we have let pride determine our decisions. Father, when you have given us the example of laying down our life, so God, I pray over all of us, reveal right now, reveal the thing that needs to come to an end, reveal the thing that needs to be covered and, and eliminated in our life so that we might get up and walk in the newness of life you've given us. Reveal all right now, Father Spirit, come and show us. There's power in proclaiming your gospel. And Father, we take this bread that is the broken body of your son that he laid down on our behalf. And Father, we proclaim it over our lives that each and every one in here will be set free by faith. And Father, we do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name.
scriptures describe that that Jesus bled out till there was blood and water. And it was poured out for you. It's poured out for me. Not as permission to live as we do, but as permission to live as we can't. Whatever excuse, whatever hang up, whatever circumstance we have right now, we take this cup and we acknowledge the gift that was given. And we proclaim it over our situation. We proclaim it over our lives. And we're going to walk in newness of life by faith in Jesus. He has purchased it with His blood. So we do this in remembrance of Him. Baptism declares the turning from a life of disobedience to a life of obedience, following in the pursuit of Jesus. Maybe you need to take that step. Maybe you need to to publicly acknowledge the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And you want to follow Him. And maybe there's a circumstance or a situation in your life that you have proclaimed the gospel over this morning. It is applied to that circumstance and that situation. It no less requires you getting up and walking in the direction Christ has called you. We do not proclaim it and sit and wait on things to happen. We have proclaimed it. Now we're going to chase after him in the correct direction, believing that his authority will land on us and it will transform us in increasing measure as we chase after him, leaving old things behind. We have proclaimed the gospel over our lives. And now we rise and we walk in that newness of life. His grace will be applied. Our transformation will take place. You will have troubles in this world, but take heart. He's overcome the world. Let me pray for us. Or Shelly, will you, or Shelly going back? Sean, will you pray for us?